Good morning, and welcome to Journey again. Uh, it was a crazy week, uh, but it was a great start. Uh, kids everywhere, all over the property, they just wear trails in the back, and they are very busy and very tired at the end of the day. Uh, but it is a great, great day. You know, um, my mom and dad watch every Sunday morning online, uh, so I always try to keep that in mind. My dad knows the Bible better than anybody I know, so he keeps me on my toes uh, for sure. Uh, but uh, last night I was talking to my mom. She said, what are you preaching on today? I said, uh, sex. <laughs> she goes, oh, good. <laughs> so uh, keep in mind, my mom and dad are listening. Hey, mom and dad <laughs> today. Um, but we're going to talk about sex. Not my favorite subject, obviously, but it's in the Bible. And uh, when you study through a book, again, 1 Corinthians is taking us right there. And uh, there really isn't a more relevant subject in our world today, to be honest with you, because we are bombarded from every angle uh, with sexual messages and messaging and telling us what's right, what's wrong. Uh, well, not what's wrong. Nothing seems to be wrong <laughs> about it, but what's right and what ought to be happening. And uh, so I think it's time that we had a biblical view of it and kind of bring our thoughts back, focus what the Bible has to say. So... Uh, um, you know, uh, I'm going to give a little history about sex in America. Sex in America became public was what was called the sexual revolution. Before that, people didn't talk in public about sex. You didn't see all the messages and everything else. But in the, the sexual revolution came along in the 60s and 70s. It was a social movement that challenged the traditional roles and codes of behavior related to sexuality and interpersonal relationships through the United States and several other developed countries in the 60s and 70s. The result of the sexual revolution includes increased acceptance of sex outside of traditional heterosexual monogamous, monogamous marriage, no-fault divorce, public nudity, mass commercial pornography, premarital sex, the hookup culture, the trend toward cohabitation rather than marriage, homosexuality, marriage equality, trans rights, alternate forms of sexuality, and the legalization of abortion. All of those things came through, if you think about it, the sexual revolution since the 60s and 70s. The sexual revolution can be best understood as Marxist philosophy viewed through the filter of Freudian psychoanalysis. Wilhelm Reich, who was the father of the sexual revolution, summed it up like this. The individual will be repressed and oppressed and therefore powerless and not fully human until he assumes autonomy over his body, particularly his sexuality, throwing off the authoritarian shackles of family and religion, and especially traditional cultures' oppressive, outdated sexual morality. The idea of the sexual revolution is that the individual is at war with the traditional family and the church over the sexual expression of the body, and that true happiness can only be found in the victory of the individual. The church can only be tolerated if it abandons traditional sexual teaching and embraces this new freedom because they are contrasting standards. The sexual revolution can only be true if God does not exist. Can I repeat that? The sexual revolution can only be true if God does not exist. The reality is that God knows us and all of our needs and the order in which he has established in creation will be for our greater good and for our happiness. But here we are today in 2022, and now some people can't even define what a woman is, and some people think that men can get pregnant. 
That's where we are. And I've seen all this in my lifetime, honestly, not proud of that. And there was a commercial several years ago that said, you've come a long way, baby. And I would say that's probably true, but not in the right direction. So understanding all of this kind of brings us to where we are in the book of Corinthians today. And what's kind of interesting is that in that culture, to be called a Corinthian meant that you were, a, were, were uh, fornicating or sexually immoral. So if that's who you were, they called you a Corinthian. And here we are studying the book of Corinthians. That, again, was written to the church in Corinth. And so we pick up in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12, and Paul says this, and he's kind of quoting the philosophy of the day. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. See, they had the view in that day, like people have today, we should be able to do whatever we want to do. I mean, if two consenting adults want to have sex, how can that possibly be wrong? It's a free country, right? But Paul says, just because something is legal doesn't mean that it's moral. And just because the government says something is okay and accepts it doesn't mean God accepts it. I mean, if we were just say what is legal and what our government, our world accepts today, that's a very low bar, a really low standard. And God's standards for his people are much, much higher than the world that we live in. See, God has established an order for our good, and the Bible is clear what that order is, and that's what we're going to talk about today. Also understand, Paul said, you have the freedom to do some things, but freedom is not always permission or wisdom. In our country today, the First Amendment of the Constitution allows freedom of speech. So in reality, you can go and say anything that you want to. You have the freedom to do that, but it's not beneficial or right to say anything and everything that pops through your mind or what you feel. That's not smart. That is, in some cases, called hate speech. But we have the freedom to do it. A lot of things that our faith says don't do it. So when we think about freedoms and we think about permission and wisdom, it's when we need God to give us direction and clarity where those lines are drawn. Paul goes on to say, plus, you may have freedom to do it, but in reality, what happens is you become a slave to it. You are mastered and enslaved to it because you can't stop looking at porn. You can't stop sleeping with your boyfriend or your girlfriend. You can't stop going from one bad relationship with the other. You are a slave to that because you've allowed yourself to do it. But he says, in reality, those who are truly free can say no to sin and practice self-control. He, he says, you say food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. So one of their arguments was this. If you get hungry, you eat, right? So if you want to have sex with somebody, why don't you just go ahead and do it? The reality is animals do that, right? Animals do that, and we are not animals. You are not a highly evolved animal that just responds to its urges. Instead, you are an image bearer of God. You were made in the image of God. He made you, created you with dignity and value and worth. See, animals don't have a soul that connect in intimacy. Animals don't have that like people do. When people have sex, it's to be a sacred thing. And that's why great damage is done when sex is inappropriate because it damages, it wounds, it shames, and it scars the soul. It's not just two bodies coming together. It's more than that. It's a soul connection that creates a bond 
In fact, someone defined it as a soul tie that, that ties people together, that binds their hearts and minds as well as their bodies. Sex is intended to, be strength, to strengthen the bonds of marriage for a lifetime. But if treated carelessly, it ends up becoming something that becomes divisive and harmful, in fact. Someone gave this example that if you glue one object to another, it will adhere to it. But if you let it almost dry, the glue almost dry, and then you rip it off, it will leave a small amount of residue on both of them. And if you take that glued object and stick it to several other places, it will leave residue everywhere it sticks, and eventually it will lose its ability to adhere to anything. And that's kind of what happens in casual sex. Each time you have an intimate relationship, you leave a part of yourself behind, and eventually you may even lose the ability to form a healthy and lasting relationship at all. And that's why sex can't be casual, even from a, a practical point of view. Another argument that was given was this, it's my body, I can do what I want with it. Whoever told you that your body belongs to you, did you create your body? Did, did you redeem your body as a Christian? No way, Jesus did that, it's not your body, it's on loan to you. You're gonna give it up one day, but right now you're using it, it was created by God. Of a couple of verses down, Paul says, you are not your own. You are bought with the price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Keep in mind that when we read these scriptures, these epistles uh, specifically, they are written to believers. This is to tell us how we live. We're not to judge the world. We talked about that last week. God's going to judge the world. We are to judge ourselves and one another, other believers. We spent some time talking about that last week. But the idea of being our own is something we've created. We've made it up. Our bodies belong to Jesus, God who made them, and Jesus who redeemed them. And Jesus didn't give you your body for you to abuse and misuse it. He gave you this body that you have to honor him, to worship him, to obey him, and to live in honoring relationships with him. And that's why we have to understand how believers are to live. Paul says, the body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. So Paul says, these bodies were given to us to honor the Lord, and God is going to one day, even as these bodies die, he's going to raise these bodies up just like he did Jesus, and one day we're going to stand before the Lord, and we're going to be judged by him. In fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. So we're going to be judged for what we have done while in the body. If you think about it, on this earth, we're in the body, right? And we think and act and speak and sin in the body. So we're going to be judged for what we've done in this body. It, I, I don't want this body. I, I'd rather it be God's, you know. And, uh, and I want to do my best to honor God with this body. Paul goes on to say this, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with the prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with the prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. You say, wow, that sounds pretty rough. I I've never been with the prostitute, right? But prostitution is where sexual savers are done in exchange for some form of compensation, which sometimes happens in dating, doesn't it? 
the expectation or the obligation for sex in a dating relationship. But you know what? Paul is not just talking about prostitution here. Paul's talking about any sexual experience, which is a lot more than just body merging together. Sex is a merging of the soul, uniting with the other person in an intimate way. And if we are believers, we are already united with Christ. We read that several times in the Bible. And in a real way, we are implicating Christ in our sin because he is present with us. That whenever we sin in this way, that we're actually dragging him into our mess because he is there with us. We're united with him. He's united with us. And so the way that we unite with others intimately brings Christ into it in a way almost indirectly. So there are serious, serious implications whenever we sin sexually. Paul goes on to say, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your temples, your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? You are not your own. You are bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. You know, we know that sin is sin, right? And so I don't want to say more about this sin than others, but sexual sin is different from other sins. It's an abuse of something that's sacred. It impacts other people. In some way, in some cases, it may even cause lifelong traumatic experience. Sexual immorality will kind of consume your flesh and your mind and your body and your heart in an altogether different, distinct way than every other sin. Now, maybe it's not just the act of sex itself, but it's the flippancy of doing intentionally what we say, what we know is wrong. The flippancy of one night stands, the viewing of pornography, the indifference toward God's commands in this area, the engaging and distraction of the mind that turns our hearts away from God, and we don't think about him. We put him out of our mind for a time. Proverbs chapter 6 says, adultery destroys the soul. Now, I don't know and totally understand why, but I believe and trust the Word of God when it says that all other sin, this is different from all the other sins. And then you add in the practical aspects of sexual transmitted diseases and unplanned pregnancies and broken hearts and actually a higher divorce rate, and it all equals bad sex. So to this point, we've talked about bad sex. Bad sex is all sex outside of that with your heterosexual spouse. Now let's turn the corner, I'm tired of talking about that, and let's talk about good sex, right? Because the Bible talks about that as well, right? While sex is wrong outside of marriage, it is very right within marriage. And in fact, we would say that God's gift to married people is sex. It is a gift. And since we're created with sexual needs and desires and, and drives, then we're to fulfill them within marriage. It's not a dirty thing. It's not an e evil thing, but it is something that brings responsibility to us and to recognize how God has put that and that gift that God's given to us. So let's turn the corner in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Now for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. So obviously what he's saying here is that, you know, it, uh, it would be better if that was not a drive, if you had that drive under control. Paul was a single man. He'll kind of talk more about that. In fact, to be honest with you, next week we're going to talk about singleness. And, uh, and we've got a special guest, special to me anyway, that's going to be coming and talking about 
singleness. And that's my son, uh, who was, uh, got, got married about 30, so he can tell you all about that, being an adult. And I'm excited about him being here. He comes in on Wednesday. Uh, he's going to preach on Sunday. So I'm, I'm pumped to hear about that. Um, but at this point, uh, we're going to kind of put that aside, and we're going to talk about, because Paul says, sex is a drive, and there was sexual immorality in the church. And because of that, it needs to be talked about, and it needs to be contained within marriage, exclusively with our spouse. He goes on to say, the husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Paul says here it's a marital duty, which doesn't sound exactly appealing. I like what the New Living Version says a little bit better, the translation, the husband should fulfill his wife's sexual needs, and the wife should fulfill her husband's needs. So you see, marriage brings us into a relationship where we are one. We actually belong to each other, and we yield authority over the rights of our bodies to each other. You know, the whole idea about marriage is that you come from two separate places, two separate families, and you bring your lives together. You give your life to each other. The Bible says that the two become one, one flesh. They are one, and you kind of give yourself to each other. You don't exist separately anymore. Now you belong as one with your spouse. And so it's a special relationship. We love and care for each other, and we meet the needs of each other like we're supposed to do in every other area of married life. You don't just show indifference to the needs of your spouse in any area. And intimacy is an important part of marriage. And I'm afraid sometimes that there are couples who let this area of their marriage go. Life is so busy. Uh, when, with children, with everything else, this area can be let go. And one or more may then harbor resentment toward the other person. Since it's one of the ways that our oneness is created and maintained in heart, mind, and body, and soul, we need to make sure that we work on this part of our relationship as well and that we have give, set apart time for that. Because the reality is that God created sex as a gift. And there are several reasons why I believe that God gave sex to married couples. The first one is for pleasure. We don't think about that a lot, but if you read the book of Song of Solomon and the descriptions that are given there, it's a little bit embarrassing sometimes. That's a tough book to preach through because it's just very blatant, very clear. So we are to enjoy our spouse. It is a gift for God for our pleasure. Secondly, obviously for children, Generation, uh, Genesis chapter 1 says, God said, go be fruitful and multiply. And what a miracle it is that in the moment of greatest intimacy, love and trust conceives many times another life, which is also a gift of God that is to be valued and treasured and not thrown away. The beauty of this is that God said, this is how you're going to procreate. You're going to multiply in this way. The beauty of that to create another life that brings joy as well. Thirdly, God gave us sex for oneness. In Genesis chapter 2, the husband and wife became one flesh. And here's the thing that is so special. You can't be one with multiple people. You can't do that. We have to think about what the purpose of it and the, and the boundaries of that. In fact, that's a betrayal of yourself and them, like we talked a few moments ago. And you know, the, the statistics show that even living together has a higher rate of separation than marriage. And the reason for that in a lot of cases is that they haven't truly given yourself to another person. You haven't made that commitment. And so there, 
oftentimes it will be the freedom to go somewhere else. And that causes issues as well. In fact, couples that live together before marriage have a higher divorce rate than others. Marriage is to be a total joining of everything. Your lives, your bodies, your schedules, possessions, bank accounts, everything you have so that you are truly one, not divided in different directions. The fourth reason I believe God gave us sex is for knowledge. Genesis chapter 1 said, Adam lay with his wife Eve and he knew her. You know, whenever the Bible talks about sex, oftentimes it uses the word know. And he knew his wife or uh, he knows his wife or spouse. We know our spouse like nobody else, Right? There's a oneness that, that is created there. Intimacy allows us to know and to be known by this person in our life, one person as we become one. Again, sex is a soul tie that binds people together. Love and trust and oneness and vulnerability and openness and knowledge of this other person. So right sex, good sex, is holistic. Not just the body, the mind, the heart, and the soul. A fifth reason that God gave us sex, I believe, was for comfort. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, it's the story of King David who has lost a child, he and his wife Bathsheba. And that child, uh, had, had, his death had broken their hearts. And it says this, then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and he went to her and made love to her. And so in their shared grief, they comforted one another. Intimacy can provide comfort when there is stress and grief and disconnection. It's a way of coming together and sharing that oneness. And then the last reason I believe that God maybe gave us sex is for protection. And I come to that because that's kind of where the scripture is taking us today. If you're in a marriage that um, is without the oneness and the connection and the intimacy and knowledge that sex provides, then you are vulnerable to sexual temptation. In fact, that's how Paul began the chapter and says you would be better off to keep your body under control, be celibate like he was, but because there is temptation, because there's sexual immorality, then people need to marry. And a lot of people marry in a lot of reasons, and this is one of them. It's true with both men and women. Sometimes when there is not that intimacy, someone else gives them attention and compliments and an emotional connection uh, leads to a physical connection that then leads to devastation in many cases of the marriage. And that's why Paul says, do not deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer, then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not a command. I wish that all of you were as I, but each of you have your own gift from God and, and one has this gift, another has that. So he says, don't deny yourself this intimacy unless you both agree and then it's a brief time and filled with prayer. And I have to believe that in many cases when intimacy is missing in a marriage, it's probably not for those reasons. Probably not agreed upon and it's probably not a lot of prayer going on instead of sex. See, like the intimacy, that, like intimacy creates oneness, the lack of it also creates division and hard feelings. Satan is looking for a way to get into your marriage and divide you. And he creates temptation and anger and bitterness and rejection and neglect and hurt and distraction and destruction and adultery and divorce, all kind of things into our life. And the key to guard your sex life and is to guard your sex life and to keep it healthy. See it as a gift, but also it has a huge responsibility. And that's why Paul says, I wish all of you 
were like me, single and celibate. Because, but, but, but because you're not, I mean, it'll be a lot simpler, but because you're not, then make sure that you keep that in marriage. So this has not been an easy topic to talk about today, but I'm telling you, it's a different message than what the world's telling us, isn't it? That God has a much higher standard for his people. And today, I want to wrap up this topic with a call to purity within and without marriage. If you are not married, I want to challenge you to commit to a life of purity. If you've already missed that and kind of messed up, reclaim that. Reclaim that and say, that is not going to happen again until it's in a place within marriage where God wants it to be. If you're in marriage, I want to challenge you to think about what the Bible says about the importance of intimacy within marriage, but also to make sure that it stays there. And if that's been betrayed as well, I want to commit you to begin that over again and, uh, and, and a life of purity. Here's the thing. One day, we're going to have to give an account for how we've lived in these bodies that we have. How have we lived? Back up to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and these are the verses right before what we read. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that's what some of you were. When you read through a list like that, a lot of times we find ourselves in that list somewhere, don't we? And we say, you know what? I've done that. And maybe we don't take that serious, but Paul says those who do these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. In reality, all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And what I love is that last statement where Paul says, that's what some of you were. Do you notice the tense there? It's the past tense. That's who you used to be. All of us used to do and used to be those things. Sexually immoral, adulterers, homosexuals, thieves, greedy, drunkards, all sorts of things. But he goes on to says this in verse 9. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You know what he's saying? That is not who you are anymore because God has taken that away from you. Now you've been cleansed and you've been washed and sanctified and made holy. And that's not who you are. You know, when Jesus talked to the woman who was taken in adultery, he said to her, I do not condemn you. Now go and sin no more. And I believe that's the message that we always get from God's word, not a message to beat us up and to shame us and everything else, but to convict us, to say, that's not who I want to be. And that's not who I am because of Jesus. But now go and sin no more. You know, Christianity is a religion for those who've blown it. And that's all of us. We're all sinners. Some of that includes sexual sins. We might say, well, I've never done that, but have you ever thought that? And Jesus said to lust after a woman is the same as committing adultery with her because you're doing it in your heart. So all of us are probably guilty in some way, but there's all other kinds of sins, even if we've never sinned in that way. But let me say this, there is no sin beyond the reach of the blood of Jesus Christ. If we will confess our sins and repent of our sins. He will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He will make us a new creation and restore what has been taken from us or what we have given away freely. And God will give us his spirit to enable us to live a life of purity, saying no to sin and yes to Jesus. 
So I would say this morning that every one of us probably should be convicted of this in our heart, in our mind, if not in our body, it's, it's probably been there somewhere. But rather than shame us, Jesus came to save us, to forgive us, to put us in a right place and a right relationship with God, and he can do that for every one of us. And so if you're here this morning and you know that you have a past that needs to be forgiven, I would challenge you to reach out to him. And if you're not a believer, then I would challenge you to give your life to him. I would love to have, to have a conversation with you this morning. I'd love to pray with you. Our staff will be up here. Joanne's going to step up, be available uh, to share with you if you'd like to, to pray with someone. And let me just say this, just because you come forward doesn't mean that you got a sexual sin, all right? Um, but the reality is, if you want someone to reach out to you, uh, there should be no shame among God's people. And so we ask you and open up this time for you to come forward if you'd like to come and share for prayer. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love and for Jesus. God, thank you for speaking into a topic that our culture's really messed up. Uh, God, in the last um, 60 years or so, uh, God, we have gotten as a country so far off course in this area. And Lord, it's impacted every aspect of our social life. And Lord, we as a church sometimes have gotten caught up in the very same things. And God, we have uh, excused ourselves. We've fallen for the Satan's temptations and we failed you. We failed ourselves, Lord. Father, I just want to thank you that you're a God that, that doesn't give up on us. That you're a God who loves us and who reaches out to us and God who forgives us and restores us. And Father, you give back what, what Satan's taken. More than anything else, you give us redemption and you make us holy, prepared for our time before you on the day of judgment. So Lord, I pray that all of us would just be pouring out our hearts and our minds and not only admitting our past, but committing to a better future that we might go and sin no more. Lord, I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and worship and praise. Thank you.